We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kearney. Joining us for this episode is James Tippett. He is a football analyst and author of The Football Code and the brand new book, The Expected Goals Philosophy. So I was very keen to get James on the show. Analysis, data, it's an area that I've been really putting a lot of focus personally on over the past 18 months with my work. And I wanted to get his views on a few things as well as challenging myself with some game footage that we will talk about towards the end of the interview. So definitely go and get his book, The Expected Goals Philosophy. I promise I don't ruin any of it during this interview. You're going to love him talking about it and hopefully you're going to learn a little bit about it. But to get the real insight, go and pick up a copy of the book after this interview. So excited to hear your thoughts. At Gary Kernin on Instagram, at Gary Kernin on Twitter. If you are heading to Baltimore next week for the United Soccer Coaching Convention, I'm excited to do two presentations First one is on Thursday at 4pm, how to improve individuals in a team game. And then the second one is on Saturday at 1.30, engaging players in the process of development and growth. So two topics that I'm really, really passionate about and would love to get some feedback on the ideas that I think can benefit all levels of the game so hope to see you on thursday at 4 p.m if you can make it reach out social media if you're going to be there if you want to chat before we get started a special shout out to sports lab 360 for teaming up with us in this podcast the soccer iq focus platform and modern soccer coach have been working diligently during the past couple of months here on something that we're very very excited about so stick around at the halfway point and we will tell you more about that here is James, enjoy. Just finished the book and really, really enjoyed it. So I'm not gonna ruin the whole book for anyone who's, who hasn't picked it up yet, but I'll tell everyone that they have to pick it up and have to read it. The first question, you seem to be frustrated. You seem to, to feel very strongly that it's very, very difficult to promote change within the game. Can you talk a little bit about why that is? I think for for many reasons first of all i think football fans are very entrenched in their ways in the sense that um yeah they don't like change they they think that football's a game all about tradition and um it's very hard to change those traditions like just look at the introduction of VAR to the premier league this season for example um yeah you kind of see the the backlash which that has had and i think also football's a very hard sport to analyze and break down scientifically with maths and data and all that kind of thing and i think football fans are naturally skeptical of those means of analysis um, yeah, and, and you kind of see that in terms of, uh, you know, I've seen it written that football is, is poetry, not science. And, you, you know, you, you have to kind of see it with your eyes. You know, you can't analyse players through numbers. You've got to actually see them and, and kind of and use that gut instinct to tell how good they are. So, yeah, football's definitely faced a real struggle in terms of, um, yeah, breaking down uh, value into numbers and, and, and stats. You talk in the book about Jeff Stelling 
rant on uh, Soccer mm-hmm. Saturday and uh, I thought that was really interesting because when you try, try to drive change and you're trying to trying to promote something new in the game how important is it in the in English football that you know this 24/7 media uh, circus that's on every channel at the minute that that someone grabs onto that or someone accepts that yeah, there's there's a lot of noise surrounding football. Obviously, there's so much media, so so many headlines trying to grab your attention, and that makes it all the more difficult to sift through and find actual truth or actual facts um, within that. And I think, yeah, that that's definitely a struggle which methods like the expected goals method is going to face, and and it, it, it's hard to um, find an analytical voice to to permeate through all, all of that noise. You said in the book that the dialect which we currently use to talk about the sport is deeply flawed, inaccurate at describing what we really mean, and inefficient when it comes to predicting future events. Let's let's talk about this inefficiency when it comes to predicting future events because mm-hmm. some of us that's the reason why we'll say we love the game. You know, the the midfielder that picks it up thirty yards out and strikes one in the top corner. And just brings everyone off their feet. Do you view that then, or, or is what you're trying to say is that we need to look at that a little bit more calculated, or from a coaching lens, or how are you trying to bring that about? I think that's the beauty of football. Really, is it lies so perfectly between luck and skill. Like, I think any great sport has to have a balance of the two. Like, the the, the skillful do have to be rewarded for their skill, but you also want that element of luck to make it interesting and to add that kind of jeopardy. I guess that on any given day anything could happen. And I don't think there's any way of taking the the that that balance out of the equation. Like, you're always going to have luck, and you're always going to have interesting fixtures based on that luck. But I think. From a scientific point of view, we need to get better at accounting for that luck and, f- and work out who's lucky and who's not. And, and by, by, the, by the quote that you quoted from the book, I simply mean that I think football is spoken a lot about in cliches. And I think that especially pundits, you know, it all stems from the pundits in terms of that's where the fans get their exposure to analysis from. And I think punditry has gone quite bland. And I think that you need a, a more scientific voice within that to... Uh, to as I said earlier, permeate through all the noise and all the cliches which are which are quite tired at this point and used about football. Yeah, it's amazing. I watched uh, the United game, Man United and City at the weekend. I'm going to mm-hmm. talk this to, at the end as well. I'm going to come back to this, but after the game, I had about 20, 30 minutes and I, I put on YouTube and got the English analysis and they had Ryan Giggs, Roberto Martinez, Owen Hargreaves. And, mm-hmm. uh, and there was more... Martinez had some tactical information about how United countered and how they used the front three basically to free themselves up uh, mm-hmm. when they were defending. But he was just, he couldn't get a word in because it was all about you know, inside jokes with Schmeichel on the other side. And, and, and that's what I was thinking. That's difficult for this new thought or if it's new or whatever, this analytical mind to bring into football whenever there's no real demand for it. There's, people would rather have a laugh in the studio. Yeah, yeah, I guess I guess that's definitely part of it. And I think when it comes to punditry, it's more important to be recognisable than to be, I don't know, in any sense, kind of uh, more analytical or, or um, scientific or mathematically correct, um, which is fair enough. And I guess, obviously, if you're a, TG, if you're a TV production company, you are wanting to cater to the masses, and, and that, is, uh, that is completely acceptable. But I think 
there is just a distinct lack of analytical voice. And to be fair, Roberto Martinez is an incredibly intelligent man. He's definitely one of the more scientific and more kind of accurate and more interestingly analytical voices that, that are around. But um, yeah, that, that is definitely something to note. All right. For someone who hasn't heard of XG, I'm sure there's not many, but I, I mean, there's, there's going to be a few that have heard of it, but don't truly understand it. So let's go. Give us a definition of it. So the, the expected goals method is basically a different way of keeping score. Um, it's a different way of measuring what should have happened rather than what actually did happen. And it's a way of accounting for the luck, which is so prevalent within football. Um, so the way you collect expected goals is essentially to measure shot quality as well as shot quantity. So not only do you say a team had a certain number of shots during a match, but you also measure how good a shots they were, how big the chances they created were. So it, it kind of falls in line with regular and intuitive football intuition, essentially, because when you come away from a match, do you think, oh, we deserve to win that, we created so many chances, like we missed that penalty, whatever, or you think, oh, actually, we were really luck- we were like, you know, unlucky to lose um, for, for the same reasons, or uh, you, you think about the chances that, that were created, and that's what match reports focus on, it's what highlight packages focus on, it's what you talk about at the end of the game, and expected goals are simply a way of quantifying that and assigning a value to each shot which takes place, which at the end of the day gives you a more better indicator better indication of who should have won or who deserved to win than the actual scoreline does because essentially at the end of the day this whole whole theory is founded on the fact that football is unpredictable and that is because the goals are scored so randomly and so in such few numbers um, there are only ever like one, two, three goals in a match really the average scoreline is like what two, one so there's only an average of like yeah two or three goals per game Um, and and that induces a lot of luck into the sport essentially why would a coach or how would a coach benefit from a knowledge of understanding XG? So, so for exactly the right reason, it gives you a better understanding of what happened. Um, when, when luck is stripped in the equation, it gives you a more precise and accurate image of how well your team are playing. And also you can use it to measure players, so you can use it to measure individual player performance. And essentially, to put it into extremely simplistic terms, it's about measuring performances rather than results and performances are what you can control and as a coach obviously that's what you're interested in is what you can control and results are are what happened to performances after all the luck and after uh, the uncontrollables come in such as um, if you concede from a deflection which which kind of was from a shot from 30 yards out which you you're, you know and, and you've dominated all game but that's happened you should still look back on performance and think, hey, we played well because we dominated. And the fact that we were unlucky and conceded that that one shot, um, you know, we should acknowledge that, that was just bad luck rather than, oh, no, we're playing really badly because we lost, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. You talk about Arsene Wenger in the book and how he was one of the first coaches to publicly discuss it. That we said before, you know, how important it is that it gets onto mainstream media. What ways would would elite coaches use this in their preparation you mentioned the review there about analyzing it you know just after the game listen realistically we should have lost that game and etc but how how would you use it in your preparation um in your preparation you can use it in a number of ways you can use it to analyze the opposition that you're your your upcoming fixtures against you can see are they performing well according to XG? Are they what kind of positions are they getting into? You can look at the individual shots and break it down shot by shot, like which players are dangerous. You know what what kind of de- 
defensive positions should you pick up to limit their XG and also vice versa? What kind of positions should you be looking to get into? Like, how, how does their defence line up against it? Um, and, yeah, just to generally assess the past performances of both teams and look in the future where you can exploit exploit those you know weaknesses in your opposition team or or kind of highlight your own strengths if that makes, if that makes sense i find this one tricky right so I, I get the whole map in the pitch but how does xg then take into consideration for the ability of a super talented player who can hit from distance to so say you know bobby charton back in the day or frank lampard does their value or does their xg chart then change with ability so this is where you get slightly more complex and where um, I'd recommend you, you read up on, the, like your readers read up online about expected goals or find articles or read the book or whatever. Um, but essentially you can get different types of models. So the standard, the industry standard model is um, based on taking a collection of hundreds of thousands of shots and, and kind of averaging those out from specific positions. So say you have 10,000 shots from the specific position right in the corner of the penalty area and 1,000 of those 10,000 shots result in a goal you can therefore uh, calculate that 10% of those shots have gone in therefore a future shot in that position carries an expected goals value of 0.1 so 10% um, and whatever player shoots from there you'd say 0.1 no matter if it's Messi or or um, you know Glenn Murray or someone like that um, you, you, you can't differentiate and that, but that's how you tell Messi would probably score if Messi then actually from his 0.1 uh, if he has 10 shots in that position 0.1 XG times by 10 would be widely expect to score one goal from those 10 shots based on historical data but if he actually scores three goals and he's, outperform- and he's outperformed it and you can tell that hey look Messi's really good at shooting because the average player would have scored once but he scored three times uh, hopefully that makes sense I mean it's quite, it's quite a difficult concept to explain but um, hopefully that makes sense but yeah and then the second type of expected goals model is um, is more geared around yeah you can affect it you can affect what, what type of player is taking a shot and that does affect the, the value that is outputted but as I say this is quite a difficult concept to explain and if, I wouldn't begrudge anyone for not understanding um, what I've just said but uh, yeah essentially there, there are different ways of doing it Right so say someone is 40 yards from goal and time or space does that play a factor as well does the conditions that they're around does that impact it yeah so, so the way you assign a shot a value is uh there are a number of things which can affect it the main is obviously the position of the shot so a shot from one yard out is going to have a close to 100 percent likelihood of being scored whereas a shot from 50 yards out has a close to zero percent likelihood so maybe like 0.01 xg like a one percent chance um so that's the main determinant, but then there are other variables which affect it. So whether the ball is, you know, a volley or hit from the ground is obviously going to affect how likely it is to result in the goal. As is whether it's on the weaker foot or the stronger foot of the def- of the striker of the ball. Uh, as is some some models, the more advanced models can account for presents, uh, defensive positioning. So if the a uh, shot taker is surrounded by five defenders and obviously he's going to be less likely to score than a defender, who's com- uh, a striker who's completely unopposed. So yeah, there are, there are lots of different variables that affect it, but the main, the main determinant of uh, expected goals is the shot location. Moving then forward into uh, training, I mean, what, mm-hmm. because if a player, you know, on, on average, an, an attacking midfielder might have two shots a goal per game, 
it's a really small sample size over the course of a season so can we add more data from from training is that legitimate or, or how how do teams do that yeah i think i think you can definitely use it to teach players the value in not taking long shots i think the main thing that expected goals has taught analysts and teams is that it's better to try and work yourself into really dangerous scoring positions and passing up on taking long shots than yeah than taking long shots so for example if you've got a midfielder who's 35 yards out from goal Whereas before he might have had a shot, you look at the data and you say, "Hey, we can work. We can accumulate like more expected goals by trying to work the ball into the area." And although like nine times out of ten we might lose it, the one time we do get in, we accumulate an expected goals value which is much higher than than what could be accumulated by the ten, you know, the ten long shots. So that's definitely a way that's affected it, and that's definitely something you could kind of teach in training. Um, and I, I know that clubs definitely have. Um, set up drills and training exercises which teach players the value of that they'll say hey have a shot have 20 shots from this location right and see how many times you score and then we'll give you two chances from a really close location and we'll see how many times you score and and, uh, and that kind of ingrains it in their brain and their memory that actually um yeah taking 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 less big chances is a better technique than taking lots and lots of really small, unlikely long shots. We're going to take a quick break here to talk about the exciting collaboration between Sports Lab 360 and Modern Soccer Coach, which is just days away from going live. So over the past couple of months, I've been helping Sports Lab 360. We've been working hard on a new feature that will hopefully add massive value to the coaches who use the Sports Lab 360 platform. So currently, coaches who use the platform can make Soccer IQ assignments to their players in the form of online interactive modules. Coaches can choose from a library of module topics that range from basic defensive shifting to individual positional roles within a certain formation and much more. The coaches can then assign these models through the platform and then can monitor player scoring completion with ease. So today we're excited to announce that a full library of sessions created by myself will be available in the Sports Lab 360 platform next week. So while Sports Lab 360 remains a tool focused on soccer IQ development for players, the program is now extending towards coaches with session plans that tie directly back to the assignments that they've made. So you walk through just about any symposium or even the convention next week and you'll probably hear the word soccer IQ, little buzzword. And to be fair, it's a tough component to address with players in the past. With Sports Lab 360, they've done an amazing job in making it easy and effective to address this component of player development. And I think the clubs and the coaches, the college coaches who are looking to get ahead of the game by extending game intelligence to beyond the training pitch can really benefit from, from this here. Especially when you don't have the time on the training pitch that you maybe would like to prepare for games. So really excited to team up with Nick Sports Lab 360. Please check out their website sportslab360.com Send Nick a message. Tell him Gary sent you. He'll do you a little deal. Back to James. Enjoy. When when you go to training sessions today, obviously there's a massive support staff uh, around the world. You'll see a lot of S and C, a lot of uh, a lot of the medical GPS units out there. Uh, how, are we getting to a stage now where the analysis guys are out there watching training and then taking more? Uh, more statistical data through what's happening out there on a football or tactical level? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think 
Um, obviously, it's very hard to speak for for clubs because clubs are very secretive in how they do things, and no one likes to reveal how they how their methods work. But yeah, I'd say definitely there's a growing influence of those data people within football, and they definitely have a lot more of a say on on the tactics and and on the manager. And even you know you see every player now basically wears one of those sports bra things under their shirts, which tracks their heart rate and and other such data and. You know that's constantly being analysed by the team to to measure not only performance levels but also fitness, and they can they can tell with incredibly ac- incredible accuracy nowadays, like how likely a player is to sustain an injury or to get tired, and that that's that's um, yeah only only good for the sport in my opinion. Let's chat about player recruiting evaluations now. So another aspect that really intrigues me when a player like Sadio Mane uh, outperforms their expected goals total. How much of that then is down to players actually improving or confidence or then, you know, are, are there subjective factors taken into consideration with this or do we just say, you know, he's, he's lucky or, or that's that's an anomaly? Yeah, so this is a uh, an area of contention and debate at the moment is if, if Sadio Mane takes 50 shots over the course of the season and the expected goals total that he, he's outputted is, say, like, 20, you'd expect him to score 20 of the goals based on the chances that he's had, and he actually scores 29. Is that a result of Sadio Mane being an incredibly good finisher and you know outperforming his expected goals due to his ability, or is it due to a kind of natural deviation of luck? So, some so like naturally, some players are going to outperform or underperform their expected goals output just simply down to random chance and the fact that they've got lucky with their finishing. And that, that's the kind of debate which is which is being made at the moment. Um, what I would say is, if you look at the expected goals data of, of most top players, it, it, they don't. There's not a single player really who consistently outperforms the expected goals total. Like Ronaldo is probably classed as one of the greatest finishers of all time, and he's actually underperformed his expected goals total in four of the last five seasons. So it's it's one of those. And get, getting deeper into that, I mean, uh, this is explained in the book as well. Um, yeah, finish. I actually, you know, I won't go deeper into that because that takes me down a, a whole different tangent. But um, yeah, that that's kind of a, a high level answer to that question. Yeah, in the book, you you talk about Brentford and their model. Uh, very very interesting, and that almost uh, that calculated way going back to like, you know, that this way we view the game. They view it as a business model. Players are assets, and. This simplistic idea of selling a player when someone overpays for them, and then buying the player when people you can underpay for them, uh, like why is that rocket science? <laughs> yeah, it's it's really not in like in everyday life. Obviously, you're looking to pick things up on the cheap and then sell when they become overvalued. But in football, I think what distorts that that simple mantra is that. Um, is the emotion which is involved in the game and, and especially the emotion between fans and I guess owners as well and, and the players that they have or the players that they cherish like if a player is playing really well for you obviously you see him as an idol and you want them to stay at your club whereas like actually in reality a lot of the time if a player's had a season or re- or two seasons of like high overperformance that's the best time to sell them because other clubs will to buy them for a lot of money and you can probably get over the odds for him if that makes sense but um, obviously that in football that's quite a radical notion because like 
most owners wouldn't dream of selling their best players or the players who have been performing best. But hey, that's that's the model that Brentford adopted. And the first few seasons it happened, obviously all the fans were outraged. They were like, "Why have you sold our top scorer, our best player?" But it's allowed them to continually, you know, accumulate the amount of wealth and therefore the amount of talent that their squad has. And and it's been quite, it's been extremely successful for them. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating because you you know you, you talk there about there that the fans outrage, but when a when a team basically comes forward and has a mission statement from leadership management and said you know we we will sell when we get the best offer and we will do everything objectively based on the numbers, does that then become difficult to create this again this once upon a time team spirit that. You know, if you're a player in that locker room and you start to think, well, I'm going to be sold here in the next 12, 24 months based on performance, you know, do, do you start to then mess with the dynamics or is there a risk involved in messing with, I suppose, the soft side of soccer? Yeah, I guess that's definitely an argument that could be made, but I think the counter-argument to that would be, I think every football club has that now. Like Football is such a ruthless business nowadays mm. that um, you know the average lifetime of managers now under a year so it's quite hard to argue for the soft side and, and the kind of cultural, like, team-building, you know, nature of it, where, you know, Pochettino got to a Champions League final a few months ago, and now he's just lost his job for underperforming. Like, football isn't... Football, you know, is ruthless nowadays, and if you're going to be ruthless, you may as well, you know, do it in an intelligent way rather than a, a kind of uninformed way, if that makes sense. And But, but I completely appreciate the argument that yeah, it, it is it is difficult for players and and coaches and managers because you, you never know what the lay of the land is going to be like at your club in a year's time. You never know where you're going to be in a year's time. Yeah, it's a good point. Good point. After actually, you mentioned there about knocking down a road, but it seems like the whole book is well, you could go down this road and you could go down that road. And after XG, it it seems then that you can get into expected assists and then expected value of possession and. You know, I watched some of the presentations on the Stats Bomb conference recently, and it's it just seems to never end. I suppose how do you battle as a coach not getting lost in the numbers? Yeah, that's a fair point, and I think I think even within this statistical approach, there are things which are good and there are things which are less good, and I think you do get in danger of going too far down and trying to analyze almost too much trying to over analyze and also trying to find meaning where there isn't potentially meaning um and you've just got to be careful with with how you use the data and you've just got to use it in a responsible way and be aware of its shortcomings as well as its advantages and and yeah be be and also one of the main messages that i hope i convey in the book is that data is pointless without context and you're always going to need that that contextual side you're always going to need the human element to it you can't simply look at data and take that as bible you've got to trying to think of the actual reasons and and that's where you know that's where you need to reconcile the, the kind of gut feeling and the kind of the human side of football with the with the um more analytical and, and numbers side of it analysis in general it's still it's we just spoke before we start recording still in its infancy amongst the coaching community uh, how would you recommend that coaches start working alongside it who maybe don't have the benefits of a lot of funding or an analysis department yeah so analysis is actually something which which comes very cheap it, it tends to be quite underappreciated or at least it used to be i guess it's now its influence is growing but you can still <clears throat> if you're 
if you're a professional club or a semi-professional club, you can still hire, you know, you can or, or build an analysis department for very cheap. And it's, it's a tool you can use to compete with the wealthier clubs who don't see the need to, to, to use such analytics. And that's how Brentford have been successful, really, going back to Brentford, because they haven't had the finances to compete with the other teams. So in a sense, they've had to use analysis as a as a way of outthinking them because they haven't been able to outspend them. Um, in terms of how to actually go about that, I guess it varies from club to club. But um, yeah, you can start by just hiring a few analysts, I guess, like they're not expensive and, and, and just getting them to read as much as they can about about the analytical approach to the game. That's, that's what I'd recommend. Very good, very good. Right, the last couple of questions I wanted to ask on the video and obviously can't pull it up. So I'm going to send you uh, four pictures, five okay. pictures. So this was from the United and City game. Again, it's funny because it changes the way you watch a game when you're when you're reading it. So I watched this game and then what I did for a little experiment for myself was I watched the game and then in the first half I thought, I'm going to guess the XG of Manchester United. Okay. <laughs> And I was like four, four, and then I looked at the report, and it's uh, one point one two or something with the penalty. So I was like, I'm not having that. So I went back and I'm like, was I was my eyes deceiving me? So the the clips that I sent you here are the four chances that I felt that United had, and again, I'm not a math major, but is it harder? Is is XG really really tough based on you know is, is the difficulty level almost extreme at this level or you know can you talk me through these chances here and just from your your angle tell me what you see yes i think the main thing that expected goals surprise people about is when when for example rashford misses that first chance in the, in the 24th minute or 25th minute rather you'd expect like your eyes tell you he should be scoring that because Instinctively, I think you remember all the times that players have scored brilliant goals because those are the things which stick in the memory. Whereas you don't remember all the times a player blazes over the bar or misses horrifically or even just has a shot straight at the keeper, which is saved. In that sense, it's, it's, I think it's called hindsight bias, the fact that you're more easily able to recall the ball hitting the back of the net because those are the clips you see on YouTube or on Twitter and, and whatnot. So I think naturally we're, we instinctively think chances are easier than they are. And I think commentators are always saying and especially with headers I think headers are the main thing if a player misses a header it's quite often like oh he should have scored that he should have scored that but really headers are incredibly hard to convert like I think naturally we think that chances are easier to, to convert than they are and expected goals is a mathematical principle which has been based on hundreds of thousands of shots and it like it over the long run it is always going to average out and it is always correct like if, if expected goal says the average player would have scored 0.2 you know uh, sorry one in five shots, which which um, which are taken from a specific situation, like that, that is correct. Is is it's not harsh. It's not it's not like unfair. It, that's just like the mathematics behind it. But I think it's a problem with our own hard wiring and our own biases that that we think the chances are harder to con- sorry easier to convert than they are. If that makes sense. Yeah, that's why I'm fascinated with it because it it almost challenges your eyes, you know, where which is what you've just done there. You say, well, you get in the trap of thinking that that's an easy chance, but in reality, you know, on paper that's that's a lot harder than it looks. When on the second picture, it's uh it's Lingard. I think it was the first opportunity, eight forty, um, and he's just on his left side. Now, this was one that I thought it got me thinking that is. If this was on the right side, it's a different number, right? 
Yeah, correct. Yeah. Okay. Because it's on his, it would be on his weak. It would be on his stronger foot in that case. Okay, that makes sense. The the Rashford one then on twenty six twenty two the one on the edge of the box. Mm-hmm. So for me that looks pretty central. The goalkeeper's flat footed. Is does this go down because of the defender that's jumping in front of him? I think. Well, well, listen. It's from outside the box. Uh, he's hitting a moving ball, and he has got three defenders between him and the goal. Um, and it, it's it's is it? A, um, I think he's taken a touch first. Actually, hasn't he? He, he has. Yeah. His first time to be yeah. fair. Yeah. So which would which would make it easier. But um, but you still got to remember, like, if if the average player took a shot from that position, how many times would he score it? Like, in in my opinion. Less than what? Less than one in five would go in. Like if you if you lined all your players up in training and said like hit hit this into the goal and you put three defenders in front of them and a goalkeeper in, I think a lot more would end up wide or, or over the bar or saved comfortably by the goalkeeper than curly into the top corner. And I guess that this is another one where your question from earlier comes in. Like it is Marcus Rash and he hit, 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 hits the ball so well, and makes it look so easy that and it also crashed against the crossbar, which makes it look like. Uh, an easier shot but um, yeah I think this is actually an incredibly difficult opportunity to score from alright so the the Martial goal 28 mm-hmm. so, so this is what I mean that that's a difficult one and I get that that's you know left side probably low percentage chance again line up everyone in the team and, and nobody's scoring that one but, but what I'm thinking now is what's your thoughts on the defensive behaviour starting to become a little bit lax outside XG zones is there any way of that there or, or is there any thought on that there that you know, give him that shot because he probably won't score. Yeah, and I think I think that's a valid that's a valid defensive technique. Like if I think you I think as a defensive team, you'd be happy to concede low quality shots with with the knowledge that we don't mind them taking long shots, and if they score from one, then we've just been unlucky. And you've kind of got to you've kind of got to balance that with: do we want to sit off and let them take low quality shots? And just like hope the luck's on our side, or do we want to press them and and potentially block the shot, but also potentially allow for space in behind for more high quality shots to take place? And I think this is where tactics and coaching really, really can use expected goals and, and can devise tactics and um, and kind of strategies from it. Um, but but from this position, I think if you're City, you, you're feeling quite unlucky or hard done by that this has managed to sneak in the in the near post. But you've also just got to appreciate the Martial's skill and say like fair play almost like that that is an incredible goal and you you wouldn't expect him to score that mm. it's so interesting so when, when you it watched is. did you watch the game on Saturday yeah, yeah I did yeah yeah so what, like your immediate thought after the game was it was it the same because City won the game on XG and mm. and you know I watched it again and the chances and I thought yeah yeah they I mean it was closer closer range so yeah I can, I can see that side of it but I'm interested to see just a person like yourself who watches it live, are you, you know? Do you walk away thinking City should have won that game? I, I I think it's difficult. The other thing with expected goals is it doesn't really take into account um, gameplay or the or the times that goals were scored. So quite often you see a team lose on expected goals, but that's because they got a goal really early on and were happy just to sit back and defend for the rest of the game and not actually tally up any you know, XG4 of their own. So that's an interesting feature. But I'd say that if you replayed that match and gave both teams the exact same goals, you put, or exact same shots rather, you'd probably expect City to win. Like you'd, probably, you'd, accept, you'd expect City um, 
uh, Jesus to score that header mm. in the first half. Like that, that was the biggest chance of the game by a long, long way. Um, and you'd probably expect um, Martial not to score that goal mm. uh, that he did. And, and yeah, it, it's all about thinking what would have happened if you did the exact same thing again, the exact same chances, but it just happens differently. Mm. All right, last one for you. The I've sent you one more link. It's mm-hmm. Burnley v Man City. Aaron Lennon on the wing and crowded crowded penalty. But just again, just the way you're watching games when you're reading your book, this is just something that I thought was interesting. Two situations where it goes to back post, 78 seconds, and it's like a volley oncoming left back, I think it is, and it hits his own player uh, right on the edge of the box. Then City burst out and break. It's an absolutely brilliant counter-attack. And then find yeah. a player. And now... In XG, how are those situ? How are those chances? Are they similar? Are they different? What's your thoughts there? Yeah, they're similar, and that, this is where expected goals does have its um, downfall. Is that sometimes stuff does happen which you can't account for in expected goals? For example, like how many times have you seen a dangerous, dangerous ball whipped in across the face of goal, but no, and it just misses narrowly the the kind of onrushing striker's foot. Like that wouldn't go down in expected goals because no shots actually happened. Um, so that's where it does have its flaws and this one where Aaron Lennon you know, hits against his own player how do you kind of account for that and how do you give that a value of, of scoring I guess it's, again you just got to base it on defensive positioning and, and the kind of nature of the shot itself but yeah these two these two situations are pretty similar I, I'd give them a similar you know XG value in the sense that you probably they're, they're both very dangerous situations right like both both times if, you, if you're the defending team, you're incredibly nervous that a goal's going to happen because you're not really in control of the situation. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that provides some sort of answer. But but that's a very good spot and that's a very good example of of how expected goals, you know, can vary and how there is definitely that objective side to it as well. Mm. Brilliant, brilliant. I, I love it. It gets you thinking and that's where when you're watching games, like it's a, <laughs> it's a great game to play, you know, have a, have a game with your friends, chip in a few dollars and... Guess the XG like must be brilliant. You spend hours in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. no, absolutely. That is, and that's and that's what I love about XG. Is it's so intuitive with with the game, and it does make you think about the d- danger levels of attacks. So it does, you know, make you think more deeply about the nature of football. So, thanks so much for your time. This has been great, James. I really enjoyed it, and I'm going to encourage everyone to go out and and buy the book and read a bit more on it, and hopefully it'll keep it'll keep growing in the community because. You know, I think I think it's only going to benefit the game when we get a more objective lens of what we're doing. Great. No, thank you very much for having me on. And yeah, it's been really interesting to, to chat to a like-minded uh, football tactician slash analytical fan. Thanks so much to James for his time and his insight there. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. You can probably tell that I could have talked for hours on that topic. And I'm really fascinated by this I suppose, analysis surge or data surge that's happening in soccer over the last two, three years and that is now becoming more mainstream, I suppose. There's some unbelievable access to information through Statsbomb, through websites, Twitter. It's a, it's a really, really good community for sharing information. Uh, and obviously then you can tell by some clubs' recent success, especially Liverpool, that it's becoming a, a key component in environments and in coaching organisations uh, at the very, very top of the game. So I enjoyed it. I learned a lot from the book. I learned a lot from the conversation. I suppose in implementing expected goals, 
I don't necessarily see it from a personal point of view from a, a fair reflection on the game. So whenever you're looking at the, the stat sheet after the game and you see XG, I still think we need a little bit more to get a reflection of the game and to get a good understanding of the context of the game and where the goals came from, what kind of attacks were, were constructed. But one thing that I, I think XG has an unbelievable amount of value for coaches and teams is that it gets you an analysis for your teams and your players about what are good chances, take the emotion out of it, and a piece where he says, you know, line your players up and have them shoot from here. Do you think they would score? And in looking and watching games and reviewing this and reading more about it, when I look at a game and I was like, that was an easy chance, and then I, I look at it again and slow it down and then put these principles into play you start to change how you think about this and then once you extend that to shop maps and you extend it to different forms of analysis you start to then see what areas that you want to get into with with the players and I think this is a road that all coaches should be going down not just at the professional Premier League level but I think at the college level at the club level we're, we're now trying to educate players more about how they can add different facets to their game and I think understanding the game is not maybe necessarily down to tactical principles maybe it's down to hey you have a better chance of scoring from here than over there so I spoke to a coach about it when I was at home in Ireland a couple of weeks ago and it was a Gaelic football coach, Joe McMahon, who's a famous Tyrone player who's just taken the role in, in the Fermanagh job. So he was talking about that they don't necessarily do expected goals with Gaelic football, but they would he would map out every shot uh, with cones and then take the players through that at the next practice session and talk about you know, if they had 15, 20 shots, where was the best angles? This is where they shot, this is where they shot from. And it's, again, a visualisation of, you know, was that a good decision at that time? And I think for coaches, I think it's brilliant. For players, I think it's brilliant. For both to work together to try and co-own a solution or to try and get better, I think is, is absolutely phenomenal. So highly recommend you go and checking out James's book. And like I said, the data side, the analysis side is something that I think we should all be looking at a little bit closer. So please let me know what you think at Gary Kernin on Instagram, at Gary Kernin on Twitter. I hope to see you at the convention next week in Baltimore. If you're going to be there, please reach out, shoot me a message on social media, and hopefully we can connect. So thanks for listening. Have a great week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, Head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.